You're listening to Closer Look. Here's Maria Morgan. With me is Steve Green, the founder and CEO of the national retailer we all know as Hobby Lobby. But more recently, he's known as the co-founder of a brand new multi-million dollar Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. He and his wife, Jackie, wrote a book about their journey from being collectors to curators, and they called the book This Dangerous Book. Of course, you're talking about the Bible, Steve, right? That's right. Uh, This Dangerous Book. You guys like to call the Bible a cabinet of wonder. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, a cabinet of wonder is uh, what was uh, common uh, back uh, many years ago. People would collect items, and uh, it it was just a a collection of the memorabilia, things that they would want to keep and and treasure. And so uh, our, our museum is somewhat like that. It's just a collection of a lot of items that tells the story of the Bible, uh, but then when you look at the Bible itself, it is really, it's a collection of stories. Uh, many writers, many authors that uh, uh, wrote different books, and it is uh, the collection of those writings that we, uh, what we call today the Bible. I'm intrigued by the idea of, of the Bible being considered like a scrapbook. You had some that were in prison when they wrote what they wrote, and some were a king on his throne. And yet, when you put all of these stories together, I think the most incredible aspect of this book is that it collectively tells a larger story when you put them together. And so uh, the the book in itself is an incredible uh, book. There is nothing that even compares to it, uh, and that's why we want to celebrate the book uh, in our museum. Well, just like any mom who puts together a scrapbook of her child's career from birth to whatever they accomplish and whatever they do, whatever she wants to remember, whatever she wants to remind them of, you're saying that this is like God's scrapbook for us. Exactly. And and the way I see it is every one of those stories has something very significant that God is trying to tell us. We have the stories, we have the laws, we have the poetry, we have literature, we have letters, but the only thing we don't have is is pictures and those peel and sticks that we can get from the scrapbook store. But um, there's plenty of other good stuff. In fact, there are tens of thousands of biblical artifacts in the world. What kinds of things have you seen in your travels when you've gone to collect things for the museum? It's one of the things that's intriguing about this book is that uh, the New Testament alone, the, the, the four Gospels, if you were to take a look at that and compare that with other uh, uh, ancient writings, there is more manuscript evidence for the, the four Gospels than all the other major classical works combined. And Copies of the Bible far surpass those. Exactly. Uh, there, there are artifacts uh, around the world that really talk about uh, uh, and, and validate portions of the Bible that we have. And then you get into the manuscripts, the copying of Scripture, uh, whether it be Torah scrolls or uh, manuscripts of the Bible. And then obviously the print age uh, accelerated that. The very first book that was printed was the Bible on the Gutenberg Press. Uh, and we have a portion of, of a Gutenberg uh, Bible uh, in the museum. So uh, there is just a lot available to really tell the story of the Bible, and that's what we uh, try to do in the museum. Let's talk about some of your prized possessions that you, you have on display. 700 years of Torah scrolls that survived the Spanish Inquisition and the Nazis, and then you also have even Elvis Presley's Bible from 1977. We do. We have... 
uh, we have Elvis there. We have uh, portions of Dead Sea Scrolls. I, th- I think one of the more significant items is not even a real item, but is a, a replica that we had permissions to, to create of the great Isaiah scroll that's on display to show uh, what it looked like through the photographs that were originally taken of it that we we reproduced. Uh, but we have... Uh, like I said, other actual fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Taurus Scrolls, we have uh, a couple hundred that are on display, uh, that gorgeous manuscripts that have been uh, illuminated, uh, as I mentioned, a portion of the Gutenberg Bible. There's a Bible that is uh, referred to as the Aiken Bible, the first Bible that was approved by the U.S. Congress when we first became a nation to be printed here in the U.S. The Geneva Bible was one of those that is believed is what was brought over on the Mayflower by our uh, you know, uh, forefathers. And if you go into the, the rotunda of the Capitol, there's a painting uh, from the Mayflower, and it has an open Bible, which would have been the Geneva Bible. So we have that on display there. We have the Aiken Bible. We have even uh, we show some of the good and the bad. You know, uh, the Bible was used to both condemn slavery and to justify slavery. There's a Bible that uh, was referred to as the slave Bible, where they took out portions of the Bible that uh, would argue for freedom. You know, Exodus is missing, uh, where uh, you know the the Egyptians had enslaved the the Israelites, and as they're uh, leaving Egypt, they they took that out. So uh, we we show how the book has had an impact on, on our, our culture uh, and how it, you know, America is not the hero of this museum. The Bible is. And this, this country did some things wrong. This, this country did a lot of things right. Uh, but we just want to show the history and how the Bible uh, had an influence on our nation. My guest is Steve Green, CEO of Hobby Lobby and the uh, co-founder of the Museum of the Bible. I'm Maria Morgan. Thanks for listening to Closer Look. Well, now, obviously, if you're a Christian and and Even if you're a deist, someone who believes in a creator God and maybe haven't quite made the leap to accepting Jesus as Savior, I'd imagine you could have an appreciation for the Bible. But what if you don't have a faith in a God? Is there still something about this book and about its history in the world that is a draw for someone? I I think so, and I think that that's kind of the position we took within the museum. The museum is, as we refer to it, 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 it's non-sectarian. What we're doing is it's not from a particular faith tradition's position. We don't want this museum to look Catholic, to look Jewish, to look Protestant. We, We want it to be an honest assessment of a book. Here's a book that's changed our world, and even if a person has no faith or has no interest in the Bible, we would think that they ought to at least understand how this book has impacted their life. And if a person lives in this country, this book has impacted their life, whether they realize it or not. And so uh, we, we want people to come in, uh, even those that have no faith, to just get a better understanding of a book that's changed our world, it's impacted their life. Uh, in essence, what I've said is I want an atheist to be to feel comfortable in this museum. Uh, and even Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, he argues that, P, that the Bible ought to be part of our education just because of the impact it's had on our language. And he gives over 100 examples of phrases from our language that comes from the King James Version of the Bible. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the Good Samaritan, and so forth. And so uh, just to be educated in our culture, we need to know this book. So Richard Dawkins, the atheist, 
said the Bible should be taught. Exactly. And, uh, uh, and he gives over 100 examples of why. So he's at least honest enough. He doesn't believe the Bible is what it claims to be, but he's honest enough to say we ought to teach it because of liter- uh, literary culture is what he uses. An example of that is how many times have you heard on the news a story of somebody acting as a Good Samaritan? Well, if you don't know the Good Samaritan story, you lose context of that story because they don't explain the Good Samaritan story. They're just saying somebody acted as a Good Samaritan. So Richard's point is, is that for us to be literate in our culture, we need to understand the stories of this book uh, because it so permeates our language. In your book about this journey, this dangerous book, you say, like it or not, the Bible cannot be ignored. Exactly. I mean, it, it is foundational in our nation uh, to the laws, to the forming of our government. That the, the idea that all men are created equal, that our founders got from the Bible. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to like the Bible. But people ought to know how that it has impacted their world. This book speaks into every area of life, and it has impacted every area of life, from science and government and education, uh, compassion ministries, uh, just uh, practically any area you look in, music, art, literature, uh, the, the book has had an impact. Shakespeare, uh, much of what he uh, wrote had references to, to Scripture. So um, it, it is everywhere, and uh, we like what uh, one of our uh, creative teams, you know, a term that they use, it's, it's hidden in plain sight. And uh, what we are trying to do is is to highlight it and show that uh, it, it is everywhere and just point that out for people to see. Well, we talked a little bit about government and philosophy. Um, let's go back. I want to go back to your personal experience with these artifacts and your your family's personal love and and affection and fondness for these artifacts. Take me back to Istanbul and then to Israel, 2009. What was that like, traveling, looking for artifacts, meeting with people who claim to have something from biblical times? Now, I uh, had traveled regularly uh, you know, on buying trips for our, our company, Hobby Lobby, and uh, would go to different uh, countries and uh, seek out product for Hobby Lobby. So it was similar, and it was just a different product. As I'm seeing some items that are becoming available, I, I get excited about it, especially as I'm told how significant uh, some of the items are that uh, we uh, were able to acquire early on. One example is a an item that one of the colleges at uh, Cambridge was selling. It's referred to as the Codex Climaci Rescriptus. It's one of the oldest, the largest portion of Scripture in Aramaic. So it it is referred to as a Rescriptus because it was recycled, and it was a second layer was written on top of the original, and that's where some new technology is helping us pull out what that original writing was. So as, as we're seeing here, some brand new discoveries that we can find on a document with new technology, it's really exciting to be able to be a part of that. Uh, one gentleman that had collected for 30 years that had about 10,000 items in his collection, and he sold us his whole collection um, because he loved what we were doing, loved uh, the vision we had of putting this museum in. So uh, it's been an exciting journey. It's, it's just truly been thrilling for, for me and for the family. Is it safe to say that the CEO of Hobby Lobby had a hobby of collecting biblical artifacts? 
Is that a little corny? Yeah, well, yeah. One of the things I say is that we we are not collectors by nature. When when I say we as our family, uh, that that's, you know there are some people that are collectors. You know, this gentleman that we collected for thirty years, it's just in his blood. That's not what we're. What we did is we were buying specifically because we had a dream of putting in a Bible museum, and it was that that drove us to buy what we have. Um, and uh, and it's just been truly a thrilling uh, journey for us. Well, a hobby to an end, basically. You had you had a plan. With me is Steve Green, the founder and CEO of national retailer Hobby Lobby, but the founder of a multi-million dollar brand new Bible museum called Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Talk about the Washington, D.C. decision. What was the journey to getting it in D.C.? Well, uh, when we uh, first got started in this whole venture, it was a group that wanted to put the Bible Museum in Dallas, put a museum in Dallas. And so that's what got us started on this journey. And then we started collecting. And as the collection grew, that's when uh, the family just felt like we need to make sure that this dream became a reality. And uh, so I said, well, what if God doesn't want it in Dallas? And so when I looked at the top 10 metros, the other two cities that stood out to me were New York City and Washington, D.C., we engaged a gentleman to look in all three cities to see if there might be a, a site that would work well. And uh, it was while we were doing that that we had a survey commission to see if the idea of a Bible museum was even a good idea, if, if people would come. And uh, the survey showed overwhelmingly that it was a good idea, people liked it, and it also showed it would be best attended in Washington, D.C. And it just makes sense because that's the heart of museums in our nation. Uh, so we decided to focus on Washington, D.C., and in 2012, the building that we acquired came up for sale. We bought it and uh, started doing the renovation really in 2014 uh, and opened up in, in 2017. So it's been quite a, a journey, but after years of work, we're, we're finally opened uh, for people to come take a look. Take me on a virtual tour of the museum. What will I see if I visit? What will I see when I walk in? The facility was originally a refrigerated warehouse. That's what it was built as in 1923. Kind of the first refrigerated warehouse in D.C. And uh, what whatever at that time would, would need refrigeration, what you have in your refrigerator is probably what they would have had in there. And uh, uh, then it was bought by the Kennedys. It was made into a design center. When we acquired it, they had put it up for sale. It was owned by a REIT by that time, and we bought it. And um, we added two floors on top. We took out every other floor because we needed the height. And then we added a floor on top of a building that was adjacent to it, uh, an office building that we acquired as well. So altogether, we have 430,000 square feet. There are three primary ways we look at the Bible, and there are three floors designated. There's a history floor, an impact floor, and a narrative floor. Uh, and then we have other supporting uh, functions. There's uh, visiting libraries and museums. There's a restaurant, a banquet hall, a theater, and children's area. Uh, but the main three ways that we look at the book is its history, its impact, and its narrative. So the history goes through the archaeological evidence, manuscript, the print age, going into the digital age, and it also shows the effort of translating the Bible into every language of the world. So not only are we looking at the past, we look in the future on our history floor. The narrative floor is primarily to tell the book story. Uh, there's a three sections. There's a Hebrew text that is a walkthrough, about a 30-40 minute walkthrough. There's a Nazareth that Jesus knew, and then the theater is telling the New Testament story. So those are the three sections on the, the uh, narrative floor. And then the impact floor is showing how that this book speaks into every area of life, and it's impacted every area of life. 
And so we have all these different uh, areas of life, art, literature, music, government, uh, economies, history, um, uh, education, showing how the, the, the Bible has had an impact. And uh, so those are the main three ways. And uh, one of the common comments that people leaving is that they did not have enough time. So if people want to go take a look at it, be sure to give yourself plenty of time to take a look at the whole 430,000 square feet. How many items do you have at the museum so uh, we can plan accordingly? Probably about 3,000 items in the museum. That includes, uh, for example, the Israeli Antiquity Authority has their own space, and they have items within there. The Vatican has a handful of items in space that they have, uh, and other items from other uh, libraries. So, And those items will change from time to time. There's three temporary exhibit spaces uh, and uh, uh, you know we'll, we'll have new exhibits that will come and go, plenty to to keep somebody interested. Is there any danger in your mind at all of having all of these precious antiquities in one place? You know, that is a common question that we get, and so uh, we, you know we've thought about that from uh, the very beginning. We have some great security that we have hired uh, some uh, people with great backgrounds that they've gone to the other museums in town to learn from them. We've sent them to Israel to learn from Israel, and we've uh, tried to uh, make sure that we have done our due diligence to protect the items that we have. But when, when you think of you know the items that we have, it's still just a tip of the iceberg of what is out there in the world in other museums and libraries, uh, you know, even in our collection, it's just a small percent of what we have within our collection. Uh, so uh, while they are obviously the very significant items, we have done a lot to, to protect them. With me is Steve Green, founder and CEO of National Retailer Hobby Lobby, but also the co-founder of the Museum of the Bible. Steve, you and your family collected all of these things from around the world. Obviously, there's lots of opportunity for counterfeiting. How can you be sure that what you have in the museum is legit, is valid? You know, as the the forgeries become much more sophisticated, uh, the technology to identify them uh, continues to become more sophisticated. So we're working with leading experts to help advise us on that, and we're using some of the latest technology to do the research uh, on items to make sure that what we have is is authentic. Um, we have, for example, uh, we're working with uh, Oxford with some new technology they're developing called multispectral imaging that can look under layers. We have, I mentioned the item, uh, the Codex Climacu Rescriptus that was rewritten on, and this can uh, pull out that underlying text to understand what is underneath that text that was written on top of it. Uh, there's there's uh, MRI-type technology that can look through items before it's even unrolled, uh, uh, an artifact that might be rolled up, uh, and uh, being able to recreate what it was. So uh, even carbon dating items that, that help us really identify uh, and make sure that uh, the items that we have are, are authentic. And uh, if there's something that's not, we want to know about it, and uh, we will be able to determine that uh, as new technology develops. You also have something that's um, pretty basic, a concept called provenance, just the history of an item's ownership. Yeah, and so obviously the more you understand the ownership of, a, of an item, the more you can confirm it's being authentic. And uh, you know, knowing its ownership helps uh, making sure that there's not an item that at some point in its history was stolen. There are people today that are still working to try to uh, acquire back items that was stolen from their families. So 
Uh, provenance becomes a very important issue in, in making sure that it's not something that's on the black market and that obviously the more you know about it, the more sure of its authenticity. So uh, in, in this world, that is a very significant and important uh, piece of what you do when you're collecting. You have a number of guided tours on the three floors of the Museum of the Bible. Can you talk about those? On our history floor today, we have what is referred to as a digital docent, and that uh, particular device will actually give uh, the visitor a tour, and it has different spots on there where they can get further information. It's easy for them just to click on a, an icon and brings up uh, multiple options for them to learn about more during that particular time period of wherever they're at. Uh, the the narrative floor is the three sections. The the Hebrew text or the Old Testament walkthrough is a, is about a 40 minute uh, tour where you go into a room and you hear part of the story and then as a group you move into the next room and it's really a creative experience. Uh, the people that help design this floor work with Disney and uh, have done some some great museums. They did the uh, Abraham Lincoln Museum in Springfield, Illinois. Then uh, we have the Nazareth of Jesus New, which we want people to feel like they are walking into Nazareth, where it looks like the uh, the olive trees and a mikvah and an olive press and a carpenter shop and a typical home. All of that in this one area that's referred to as the Nazareth that Jesus knew. So it's a recreation of a street in Nazareth. That's right. So... Uh, it, it would be as best as we can recreate what it would have been like, uh, the town that Jesus grew up in, uh, so that you kind of understand some of the context of the teachings that Jesus taught. What is winnowing wheat anyway? And this is a way of trying to uh, help understand the culture, the climate, uh, the time period that Jesus walked this earth. Uh, and then the New Testament theater is about an 11-minute uh, theater that is a 280-degree uh, surround sound theater that tells the story of the New Testament. So that is uh, the the narrative floor. And then the impact floor has a walkthrough, a, a section, the verse, first walkthrough of uh, what the Bible Bible's impact was in America. So uh, starting with uh, founding fathers and the Mayflower coming across and the Bible's impact from then to today, and then the other part is just the Bible's impact around the world. You know, here's, the, here's this book that's impacted all these areas of life. And in the theater space on this floor, uh, we have a ride, a Disney-esque ride. It is really exciting. What we do is we, you get the sensation of flying through Washington, D.C., showing you where scripture is engraved on monuments throughout the city. I can't take you to all of them because we don't have enough time. But uh, we take you to about 13 sites. You feel like you're flying you know, from the Capitol to the Library of Congress to the Washington Monument to Arlington Cemetery, uh, just all over the city, showing you how that scripture is all over the city. What's its proximity to the Capitol Mall? Or, I mean, what, what, what's its intersection? Where would we find it if we're in D.C.? The uh, intersection that the entrance is on is at 4th and D Street. 4th and D Street is two blocks south of the Air and Space Museum, the eastern uh, part of Air and Space. 4th Street goes on the east side of the Air and Space Museum. So it's just two blocks from the mall, just a few blocks from the Capitol. Uh, there's a metro stop that comes up at the other end of the block. Uh, so you can come up out of the metro without crossing a street and get to the entrance. Um, the the uh, MTR stop is the Federal Center Southwest Metro stop. So it's a really, it's a great location right there in Washington, D.C. My guest is Steve Green, CEO of Hobby Lobby and the uh, co-founder of the Museum of the Bible. I'm Maria Morgan. Thanks for listening to Closer Look. Steve, 
what is your favorite item in the museum? When you go, where do you make a beeline to go and stand and stare? Depending on the day, I could give you a different item. Uh, One of those that I could point out, though, would be a a gorgeous manuscript that we have that had an interesting journey. It's called the Elizabeth de Boone Manuscript, um, and uh, it's one of the most highly illuminated manuscripts um, and was used, the Astor family owned it, was used to raise monies for the base of the Statue of Liberty there in Ellis Island. Statue of Liberty is given to us, but the base we built And uh, this item was put on display at an exhibit where they were raising funds. And that number of that exhibit was was in the book, and that's what page it's open to. And and why I guess it's so intriguing to me is what we found out after we acquired it was that Elizabeth de Boone happens to be my wife's 21st great-grandmother. And we did not know that. But uh, uh, it's a special item uh, for me and especially for my wife. There are so many versions of the Bible, so much reverence for it, so much art inspired by it, uh, so many artifacts that connect to it. Um, What does that mean to you? What does that say to you? What did it begin to reveal as you got deeper into this collection process? I, I grew up going to church, having a love for this book, and and being a student of it in a, you know, just a, from a layman's uh, position, I never studied it in school or anything, but uh, uh, read it and studied it. But the, as I got involved in the collecting and we were engaging uh, many leading experts around the world, uh, the, the more you study this book, the more you, you know it, what I find is the more appreciation I have for it, how incredible this book's story is. And so uh, I, I have just grown, uh, my, my faith in this book and my love for this book has just grown uh, the more that I have studied it, more that I have learned uh, from uh, leading experts around the world. Three words um, seem important to you as I read this dangerous book. The words adventure, exploration, and discovery. Um, the idea of following the evidence rather than coming in convinced. Yeah, with our museum, we are not espousing our faith. And I think it's important for people to understand that. We we want to present the evidence. Uh, we want to leave people to come up with their own conclusions. Uh, I am convinced of what this book is myself. That is my faith. That's what I believe. But what we want to do is we want people to take the journey, to take on this adventure of exploring this book for themselves, to get to know it better, to test it, you know, give it the the best challenge you can and see if it measures up to whatever challenges you, you can present it. You know, is it factually accurate? Is there evidences for it? Um, take a look, uh, learn from it. And that's what we want to do uh, and invite people to do. Our ultimate goal is to invite all people to engage with this book. Uh, Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, just get to know it better, learn about it. And what I'm also excited about is the ongoing exploration as well. I believe that God preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls until he was ready for them to be discovered. And I just wonder what he has left for us to discover. There's a lot of archaeological projects going on right now in Israel, more than ever is what I've understood. Uh, we've, we're a part of one of those. We have a, a dig at Tel Shimron and uh, finding new stuff. I am not afraid of turning over every rock because I'm convinced of what we're going to find and that this book that we're celebrating will continue to be validated through the evidence uh, if it's what it claims to be. And I believe it is, and I'm not too concerned that 
uh, it, it won't continue to be validated. So uh, that's why we're excited about this journey of, of exploring and learning all we can about this book. This has been Air One Closer Look. Find us online at airone.com.